people try to make a sharp division between church and state by saying that the church is the institution of grace and that the state is the institution of the law. But David recognized he needed God's mercy as a governor of a nation as well. He was a sinner. He loused up many times. And uh, it's only through Christ, the King of kings, that any king can rule as he ought to rule. And there's law within the church as well. And so I don't think we should make that kind of a sharp distinction. And we're going to look at this passage as we are entering into this uh, election season. Now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will He not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. And uh, it is our desire to grow in our understanding and our application of it. And I pray as uh, we apply this to our own situation in the 20th century that You would anoint uh, the lips of this uh, feeble uh, speaker, the sinful speaker, and that You would enable me to preach your word faithfully, and each one of us to receive it by faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There's been a long tradition of reading George Washington's farewell speech in Congress every year. Uh, that was his last speech as a president to the nation. And that tradition was kind of done away with in 1983 by some congressmen who said, you know, it's really silly for us to be reading an ancient speech like this that nobody listens to, and uh, I might add nobody probably believes anymore. Uh, mostly it was being read to an empty house, but what they should have been asking instead is, why are we as congressmen so far distant from the foundations of this nation that this seems out of date, it seems strange. It seems as something not worth reading. There is no way that you could read Washington's uh, speech and not come away feeling that if he was here today, he would feel that our modern members of Congress have totally betrayed and undermined our republic. And maybe that's why they don't uh, uh, like to have it read any longer. But uh, there is a value in reading founding documents like the Declaration of Independence because it's sort of like a a starting or a measuring point or a compass from which you can evaluate how far have we uh, deviated, how far have we gone away. And that is one of the purposes for this speech of David. Verse 1 says, Now these are the last words of David. This was his farewell speech. And uh, I wonder what our Congress would do if uh, somebody stood up and read this every year. 
I don't think it would be nearly as popular as George Washington's speech was. But this was a document that really was intended to be read for all time. We're going to be seeing how it points forward to the Messianic era, uh, kings in our own day. Uh, it was written in poetic form so that it could be very easily read and reread, and it could form a compass by which people for all time could evaluate civil governments. And so let's listen to David's advice as we approach Election Day. In verses 1 through 5, David advises us to unashamedly seek to once again declare our nation and urge our nation to be one nation under God. You've maybe heard on the radio the lawsuit that uh, Jay Sekulow keeps uh, bringing up of uh, Michael Newdow that he says that it's unconstitutional to be having the national motto, um, In God We Trust, on our money. And there's 58 members of Congress that are defending this lawsuit. And it'll be interesting to see uh, where that uh, goes. But at least in these first five verses, whatever you think of the Constitution, at least in these first five verses, we see that for all time, nations must be willing to covenant with God. First, we see that God raises up rulers. Who put David on the throne? Well, God did. He says, Thus says David, the son of Jesse, Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Whatever else that uh, David was, he was the anointed of God. He was the one whom God had raised up on high. And as such, he was accountable to God. Now, we might say that's fine for David. You know, he had direct revelation we don't have uh, prophets like Samuel walking around with a horn of oil, you know, that we can anoint people and know who is and who is not from God. But even later kings who did not have that direct access to God were declared by God to be appointed sovereignly by Him and accountable to Him. And I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 13 where Paul says that God appoints every ruler which means if the Democrats gain control of the House and louse up our country, um, God has appointed them for some purpose. And if the Republicans get control and louse it up themselves, it is still God who has appointed them uh, to this, and they are accountable to Him. Romans chapter 13 and beginning at verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Now, that's interesting because he was speaking at the time of Nero. And he's, he's indicating Nero was appointed by God and was accountable to be a minister to God. He goes on, he says, "...the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority?" Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for He is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for He does not bear the sword in vain, for He is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on Him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. And he goes on, Render therefore to all their due taxes, to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, uh, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. 
But what he is saying there is whether we're talking about a David, a Hezekiah, a Nebuchadnezzar, a Herod, or a Nero, they are appointed by God. As such, they are responsible to minister to God and they're responsible to be a terror to evil rather than being a terror to good. Now, I especially find interesting that term minister. There's two words for minister. One is simply servant. But in verse 6 here, when it calls them ministers, it's using the word from which we get liturgy from. I'm a minister. It's a very religious term. I'm a minister, but the same word that is used to describe me as a liturgist, as a, a minister of the gospel, is used to describe George Bush, President George Bush. It's used to describe the judges who are in the Supreme Court, the governor of Nebraska. And basically what God is saying there is God wants them to mix religion with politics or they will have to answer to Him. I mean, that's right from Romans uh, 13. And if they abandon their role as ministers to God, they have abandoned the reason for their appointment. The First Amendment was never intended to take away from this truth. It was intended to limit Congress's impact upon the church, right? And upon religion. For example, long after the states ratified the Constitution, you have language like this in various state constitutions. Delaware required the following oath of office after ratification of the First Amendment. I do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore. I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments to be given by divine inspiration. Now, I'd like to see the ACLU talk about that. You know, obviously they would disagree with it. But um, uh, Maryland's Constitution of 1851 required of public officials, quote, a declaration of a belief in the Christian religion, unquote. You could not even be in office if you held the ACLU's position. In 1876, almost a hundred years after the Constitution was ratified, including the First Amendment, North Carolina Constitution stated that no person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion or the divine authority of the Old or New Testaments or who shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state, shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within the state. Pennsylvania and other states had similar requirements. Now, can you see, just, just looking at those quotations, how ludicrous the modern interpretation of the First Amendment really is. They would not have dreamed of that kind of an interpretation. And that's the kind of heritage... Christians have been willing to give up because they have not uh, been willing to state you need to acknowledge God in the public sphere. That magistrates need to acknowledge God. And it'll be interesting to see where this court case goes because Jay Sekulow says he's willing to take it to the Supreme Court. Now back to our passage in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23. How does the ruler know how to fulfill... Paul's mandate that they be a terror to evil and a rewarder of good. How do they know what is evil and what is good? Do we just leave it up to them to define that? You know, there are rulers out there who think it's a good thing for them to be promoting the rights of people to have abortions. So how do we determine that? This is exactly what Isaiah balls the rulers out for when they are calling evil good and good evil. Light darkness and they're calling darkness light. <clears throat> it's not enough for people to acknowledge, okay, God has appointed public officials 
what this passage is indicating is they need to listen to God, right? Uh, and they listen to Him by reading the Scriptures. Now, in this passage, we see that God speaks directly to um, David. And look at verses 2 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. Now, it's true. David was a prophet. He had a direct line to God. But God just as surely and clearly speaks to us through the Scriptures as He spoke to David back in those days. The phrase here, what the Spirit says, is used as a quotation of Scripture. And nor was it only Israelite kings who had to listen to God and to His wisdom. In Proverbs 8, verses 15 through 16, personified wisdom says this, By me kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule, and nobles, all the judges of the earth. Not just Jewish judges, all the judges of the earth. And so, if those that we elect into government are to rule effectively, they must listen to God. And so, Deuteronomy 17 says that a king, because he's a liturgist, he's a, he's a minister of God, he needs to be thoroughly familiar with the Scriptures. And I want to read that passage because that passage indicates this is a precondition to ruling in the fear of God. It's a precondition to point number E we're going to be looking at in a second. Deuteronomy 17 18 through 20. And it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes and that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left and that he may prolong his days in the kingdom. Now, can you imagine how long it would take to write out by hand, no computers, first five books of the Bible? You know, you might think, what king has the time to do that? You know, let a scribe do that. But God is indicating, I don't just want the scribes to understand the Word of God. I want the king to be so familiar with the Word of God because he's written it and he's read it every day of his life. He's immersed in it that he can rule in terms of God's law. Thirdly, God is the only security for a nation. It's not our military that makes us secure. It's not balanced trade agreements. It's not the treaties and the alignments that we get ourselves into. It is God that makes us secure. And that's that phrase in verse 3, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Now, a rock was a, a natural fortress as well as a strong foundation in the Scripture uh, the, the, the term rock is used to describe security and stability. And God was not just a rock for Israel. The book of Daniel indicates that God was the rock of security for Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read to you from Psalm 33, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Uh, Benjamin Franklin warned Congress that their only security was if they trusted God. Now, this ought to be a, a rebuke to us that a deist had to remind the Congress, you know, that we need to trust in God. And yet his words, even though he was uh, theologically wrong in many ways, his words are a, a due rebuke even to today. He said, in the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. 
Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? And actually, this sure doesn't sound like a deist. It made you wonder how much he changed in his later years because deists do not talk like this. They believe God wound up a clock and he's distant. There is no providence. There's no control. But anyway, he goes on, he says, Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. God is the only security of our nation. And unfortunately, we have followed in the line of the Tower of Babel builders trying to build our own security. Now, David goes on in verse 3 and he says, He who rules over men must be just. The ancient uh, church father Augustine said, Without justice, what are states but great bands of robbers? Uh, Let me read that again because I think it's really a profound state when it comes to civics. Augustine said, without justice, what are states but great bands of robbers? Do you feel robbed by the state? I mean, I sure do. Not just in terms of finances. We're talking about all kinds of liberties and other things that the state has taken away. But Augustine's point was that if kings are not limited by God's definition of justice, if there is not a higher law above them, then there is no limit to which their tyranny can go. There must be justice. Now, ultimately, only Christ, the King of kings, is just, but it is by His grace that He enables rulers to rule in justice. Isaiah 42 prophesies of Christ saying, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for His law. Now, the mention of discouragement implies that there is resistance to His justice, right? And yet it indicates that over time, gradually He is going to be moving His justice to all of the nations of this earth and causing kings to reign as they ought to reign. And it has to come from above. It has to come from His grace or it will not happen. Our view of transforming society is that change needs to happen at every level, especially at the grassroots level. Our founding fathers said that this republic would not be able to stand unless the people were a moral people. Uh, Following words are inscribed in the Department of Justice building in Washington, D.C. Justice in the life and conduct of the state is possible only as first it resides in the hearts and souls of the citizens. Well, brothers and sisters, this means we got a ton of work ahead of us because we do not see justice in the state of Nebraska. We do not see justice in Washington, D.C. Instead, what we see is homosexuality, which is a crime according to the Bible, is being promoted. Abortion is being promoted. Uh, we have the uh, IRS unjustly. 
uh, confiscating things that do not belong to them. And many times they know that that's the case. People defend themselves. Uh, some don't. But when they defend themselves, yeah, the price keeps coming down. Uh, they knew right from the beginning that they did not owe that. Uh, there's so many ways in which the state has not been uh, promoting justice. We live in a topsy-turvy world in the area of justice. And the reason is we've abandoned the law of God. Only God can define justice. New Jersey used to have on its official seal, righteousness, righteousness exalteth a nation. And of course, you know the rest of the verse, and sin is a reproach to any people. Hawaii still has on its state seal, and you can look at this. Um, of course, it's in their Hawaiian language. But uh, when you translate it, th- these are words from King Kamehameha III however you pronounce that. And it says, the life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. Uh, He was a a Christian king. Now, connected to justice is the fear of God. The third part of verse 3 says, he who rules over men must be just. Here it is, ruling in the fear of God. Not an option. And I think this is the fundamental problem in America, and that is that our nation does not have any fear of God. You know, we have rulers in America that do not fear God in the least. And many times, even Christians who inhabit office are much more uh, worried about what their constituents believe than they are about God's opinion of their decisions. There is no fear of God. Some of you have McGuffey's readers in your libraries. We've got a copy in the church library. And in the fifth eclectic reader, he says, Erase all thought and fear of God from a community and selfishness and sensuality would absorb the whole man. The two go hand in hand. When you do not have fear of God, people can fall into any imaginable kind of sin and perversity. In fact, we've got people who go to Congress opposed to homosexuality and at the end of their term, they're in defense of of homosexuality. And you wonder, what is going on here? You have seen this happen with quite a number of people who have gone there. Well, the reason is, if they don't have the fear of God and they have the fear of man, then their behavior changes depending upon which people they hang around. The fear of man is going to constantly make them waver as well. And this is why Patrick Henry, perhaps one of the most consistent debaters at the time of the Constitution, one of my heroes, Uh, He was an anti-federalist, I think an incredibly far-sighted man. But he said that Christianity and biblical law is imperative and we need to be explicit about that in our talks of the Constitution. This is what he said. Let me quote him. He said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. It is when a people forget God that tyrants forge their chains. A true patriot as well as a genuine leader, will always take the higher ground of God's law when confronted with the evils of man's law. Government's not the enemy, for it is ordained of God. The enemy to freedom is tyrannical government that presumes to take the place of God. And that is just, I think, right cutting down to the chase of what is wrong in America today. This is really the fundamental issue. Do rulers rule in the fear of God? And this has become my prayer request for them. Lord, make these men tremble at Your Word. Give to them a fear of God. Because if we do not have the fear of God, 
we're going to lose the blessings that uh, God has poured out on America. And I'm convinced that the enormous blessings that God has given to America is because there are so many generations of people who did indeed fear God. Look at the beautiful description of the blessings promised in verse 4 to people who rule in the fear of God and with justice. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. That is a poetic description of blessing and happiness that God will give to a country when rulers rule in the fear of God and with justice governing them. And I fear that the blessings America has enjoyed so long are going to soon run out if uh, our nation does not come back to repentance. Daniel Webster said in the early 1800s, if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. If we in our posterity shall be true to the Christian religion, if we and they shall live always in the fear of God and shall respect His commandments, we may have the highest hopes of the future fortunes of our country. But if we and our posterity neglect religious instruction and authority, violate the rules of eternal justice, trifle with the injunctions, injunctions of morality, and recklessly destroy the political constitution which holds us together, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. And so pray that our nation would not just embrace the blessings, but the whole package. Without the whole package, we can't hold on to those blessings. They belong all together. But then comes a hint, and this is the heart of the sermon here, comes a hint that David recognized that he himself did not live up to the description he's just given of a king. He needed God's grace in order to rule as he ought to rule. Verse 5 says, Although my house is not so with God, yet He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will you not make it increase? If you have an ESV, you'll notice that it says, For does not my house stand so with God? It's the opposite meaning of what I have just uh, read here. And I might say it is the opposite reading of what David himself said and what God said about David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which gives the covenant that he's referencing in these verses. God spoke of chastening David's house with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men. And here's what David said in 2 Samuel 7. Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? He realized his house did not live up to these expectations that he's just written down. In that chapter, he speaks of God's mercy upon his house. And so David is not saying God is going to give this everlasting covenant with him because I am so good. Now, that's the way two or three translations have taken it. David recognizes it's not because of his goodness. It's simply the Lord's mercy. So he is saying that God has blessed him and made a covenant with him despite the fact that he has loused up several times. Let me read you four translations along this line. New King James Version, we just read. The American Standard Version says, Verily, my house is not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. The World English Bible translation says, Most assuredly, my house is not so with God, yet... He has made with me an everlasting covenant. Uh, Knox paraphrases this uh, rather loosely. 
he says, What worth is my kindred in God's sight that he should make an everlasting covenant with me? Now, what difference does it make how we translate that? To me, this is a statement that ought to bring us incredible encouragement and comfort when we live in the midst of a perverse generation. God's mercy rests upon kings and nations who submit themselves to His rule. It's a mercy that we do not deserve. We have sex scandals in Washington, D.C., but so did David. We have chappaquiddicks in Washington, D.C., but so did David. We have lies and deceit in Washington, D.C., but so did David. We have oppression in government, abuse of spending, overtaxation, but so did Solomon, David's son. You see, God recognizes that even in government... We are not perfect, and the only way God can bless any governments is through the mercies of Jesus, who alone is the perfect King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything in life needs to be seen through the eyes of the cross, even civil government. There is nothing accepted from the cross of Christ. Don't think that things are hopeless today for our nation. The Davidic covenant that David speaks of here brought tremendous encouragement to the reformers because it means that God can rule and God can bless nations even though there is evil in those nations. What God is interested in is are these nations willing to enter into a covenant relationship with Christ? Are we as a nation willing to covenant with Him, willing to have Him rule over us? I think this is one reason why this court case is an important court case. You know, are we going to completely and finally dismiss the last vestige and say, no, in God we do not trust. We are no longer in covenant with God. And this is what I want to focus on right now. What does the covenant of David mean to America? What kind of guidance and comfort can we derive from that covenant as we pray for mercy on our nation? What does David mean here when he says that his covenant is an everlasting covenant or that the covenant is all my salvation? And all my desire, it's clearly talking about saving grace or that God will make the covenant increase more and more. He realizes it's not going to happen suddenly. It's going to be something of the growth of Christ's kingdom and peace. There will be no end, right? It's going to be gradual increase. And in a nutshell, I think that this covenant is pointing forward to the fact that there is only one king who can keep the covenant perfectly. And it's only as kings come into covenant with Jesus Christ that they can find blessing on their own lives. Christ quotes this passage and applies it to Himself. Well, if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want to read that covenant that this passage refers to. There are two parts to the covenant. The first part deals with God's promise to establish a church to the end of time. The second part deals with God's promise to establish righteous civil governments to the end of time. Very significant passage, Second Samuel chapter 7, uh, beginning at verse 1. First comes the church. Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, <clears throat> I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? 
I have not dwell in the house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. In other words, he was saying, I don't really need a house. He says, in all the places where I have walked with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies." Also, the Lord tells me that He will make you a house. Now, before we read the rest of the passage which deals with politics, I want to just read one passage from the New Testament uh, that speaks of the house that God built. Now, David built God a physical house. But God said He, not David, He was going to build David a house. It's a totally different kind of a house that we're talking about here. And if you turn with me to Acts chapter 15, I want to keep your finger right here because we're going to flip right back to this. But in Acts chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 14 through 15 where uh, it's interpreted in an inspired way to say this house that God was going to build for David is the church of Jesus Christ, which we inhabit right now. Acts 15, 14 through 17. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord who does all these things." What James is saying here is that the house that God was going to build for David is the church of Jesus Christ, the new covenant church, of which not just Jews, but Gentiles are a part. And because God is building it, we can have comfort and security. Why? Because he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, and so this comes first in the Davidic covenant because the building of the church is primary. Uh, even though the New Testament does talk a lot about politics, the priority is to build the church. The reason? That's only as men are saved and discipled in the church that they're going to have the ability to rule as they're supposed to rule. Only as there is revival in the hearts of men is there going to be uh, a change in society. And the Reformers, therefore, made the Reformation of the church take precedence over the Reformation of society, even though both of them were very important to the Reformers. Witherspoon, one of the signers of the Declaration, said that our republic will stand only so long as there is a moral people. You look at the church of today and you can see why our government is in a mess. The church is in a mess. You know, we're carnal. We don't know the law of God. And most people don't want to know the law of God. They don't even want to study it, right? So how can we expect God to transform our society when we as a church are not willing to be transformed ourselves? If we're to succeed in bringing the civil government to Christ, uh, 
we must first succeed in getting the church of Jesus Christ reformed. I think it's so critical. So critical. Now, let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and let's see that God's promise to bring justice in the governments of this world is just as sure, just as certain as the promise to build the church. Another way of saying this is because God is going to be so successful in building the church, as a result, therefore, He's going to be successful in making sure that there is justice in the civil governments of this, of this world. Okay, Second Samuel uh, chapter 7, and uh, let's begin at verse 12. <clears throat> when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, how is David's throne established forever? The New Testament quotes this and says it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's the seed of Abraham. He's seated on His throne and His kingdom will never end. But Hebrews 1 makes it clear that these sinful kings had mercy only because Jesus is the final fulfillment. He's talking about sinful kings because He's talking about chastening them, right? So how do they get the mercy? It's because Jesus is the one who does keep the covenant fully. And uh, I want you to look with me at um, prophecy in Isaiah 55 and verses 3 through 5. I know we're ranging all over the place, but hopefully it will all gel together in your minds. Isaiah 55, verses 3 through 5. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know. This is speaking of Christ. A nation you do not know. A nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. And so the sure mercies of David, the covenant of David, was made ultimately to Christ. And through Christ, that covenant was made to Israel and the Gentile nations. Jesus, he says here, will be a leader and a commander of the peoples. Because David's long dead. David stands as a symbol for Christ, commentators point out. And so it's not by accident that the New Testament, using the present tense, says right now, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. In other words, Christ's church, his, his theology, His rule affects politics. It does. In Psalm 2, the Father says to Christ, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And he's not simply talking about building the church. Acts 2 applies it to the state. And Psalm 2 applies it to the state. The Psalm later says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Those are the options that are being laid before America in 2 Samuel 23 and verses 1 through 7. 
America needs to return to its foundations and be blessed. Or if they continue in their rebellion, they will find the wrath of the sun uh, uh, cursing them. <clears throat> now, I hope this concerns you because David in our passage, Second Samuel 23, says there can be no neutrality. You're either for Christ or you're against Christ. He's a merciful king. That's true. He's blessed our nation richly despite the fact we have sinned against Him. But this passage indicates there does come a time when God finally says enough is enough. Look at verses 6 through 7. But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away. It's not enough for you to vote for a person who has the best economic plan or the best policy for your pet project. If you're voting for a person who indeed is a rebel of Christ and is seeking to throw off the laws of Christ, then what you're doing is you're fighting against Christ's kingdom. You're voting for a man who is a rebel against his kingdom and who is determined to destroy Christ's lies, laws. And therefore, you're inviting judgment upon our nation. But I think uh, far more important than merely voting is that we recognize there is a spiritual conflict that's going on behind the scenes. This, this nation didn't get taken over just overnight. There has been a working and a working and a working at it by all of Satan's forces. Psalm 2 speaks of a conspiracy. And Satan has worked overtime trying to get nations to cast off the laws of Christ, to cast off the bonds of Christ. Without spiritual warfare, there is no other option than judgment. And that's what this is talking about here is judgment. David says, But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. If you're going to take the government away from the rebels, you're not going to be able to do it with voting alone. Yes, votes can help. You're not going to be able to do it with uh, any other man-made means alone. Yes, we have to be involved. <clears throat> but ultimately, it is a spiritual, uh, a spiritual issue. Here he speaks of judgment. He says, The man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. In other words, when kings rebel, once they become rebels, it's very hard to turn them around. Usually nothing but judgment will remove them from that. And that could very well happen to us. We could get nuked. In fact, uh, there are some people in the CIA who have given reports thinking in the next 10 years it's almost inevitable that there will be a suitcase nuclear bomb going off in Washington, D.C. I mean, God could bring judgment uh, if we do not cry out for mercy. It could happen at uh, any time. <coughs> but judgment by the sword is not a foregone conclusion. Remember David's statement, although my house is not so with God, Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. What happened is King Josiah, King Hezekiah, and others turned from the paganism of their parents and they returned to the Davidic covenant that's spoken of in verse 5, God's covenant over politicians, and as a result, they averted the judgment of God. Nebuchadnezzar is another example. You see, the, the Davidic covenant gives a basis for seeing or pleading for mercy in the face of political rebellion. And we may grow hopelessly depressed as we look out at the political landscape out there and say, man, there's nothing we can do. It just seems hopeless. But remember, politics is not your Savior. God is. And there have been several times in past history 
when things have actually been worse than they presently are and God has remarkably turned them around. There are some historians that think that things are, were worse at the time of, in England prior to the time that Wesley and Whitfield were used by the Lord to bring that great awakening. And many historians have said that as a result of that revival, Britain had averted a, uh, a bloody revolution like happened in France. If it hadn't been for that great awakening, that could easily have happened. And so their efforts transform men and through those men transform society. And that's why Second Chronicles 7 says it's the church which is the key to averting God's judgment upon a civil government. If my people who are called by my name, that's the church, right? My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Uh, we're living in a time of crisis, and I think the only hope for our nation is seeing another reformation, in fact, probably a greater reformation than we have seen before of both church and of culture. And it should not surprise us that our nation has turned away uh, from its founding father, John Calvin. And there are even secular people who say, even though John Calvin lived before our nation existed, he's the virtual founder of our nation. But it shouldn't surprise us if our nation's turned away when the church has turned away from the Reformation. The church is in such a sad state. And what happens when the church has lost its savor? Christ says that worthless salt is not even fit to be put onto the dung heap. A dung heap at least has the value of being fertilizer. But he says it is only fit to be cast out and trampled underfoot of men. That's what verses 6 through 7 is talking about. Judgment. Being trampled underfoot of men. There is hope. But it lies in the reformation of the church and of our return to prayer. And I've given in your outline some uh, scriptures I'm not going to go over here that indicate it's a spiritual conflict and therefore we need to take prayer seriously. It's appropriate to fast and to humble ourselves before God. It's appropriate to constantly bring God's law to bear because many times that's what brings salvation as people come under conviction of their sin and they realize their need of a Savior. By the way, if you want a videotape series in terms of bringing the law to bear in the civil department, we've got a series that is just fabulous for stirring up discussion. At least I think we have. Maybe it's been borrowed from the library, but great Great video series. We should be involved. We should vote. We should consider running for government ourselves. There's no reason why some of you could not uh, win a local election if God called you into office. But uh, let's seek to do what we can. Amen. Father God, we thank You for the encouragement as well as the warning that this passage gives to us here in America. And as we approach these elections, we recognize that from a human perspective, uh, there really is no hope of uh, achieving the kind of goals that we would have of returning to our spiritual roots of the Puritans. And yet, Father, You are a God who can change things overnight, even as You did in the book of Esther. And we pray that You would do so once again uh, for the honor of Your name and for the glory of Christ's kingdom. I pray, Father, that You would uh, honor the heritage of the many Puritans and the godly people who lived in the fear of You and uh, sought to build a nation that would be set as a light on a hill, that You would not cast off this nation as we rightly deserve and that You would not cast off the church of Jesus Christ, though we rightly deserve it, but instead that You would transform us from the inside out. And Father, open up 
providential appointments that we could have with other people to make a difference. Put us into positions where there could be strategic information given uh, to uh, those who could make a difference in our society. And may you receive all of the honor and the praise and the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Rodney's been uh, exhorting us through Psalm 2. I referenced Psalm 2 in the sermon. It's uh, a psalm that is quoted very, very often in the New Testament. And I would uh, ask you now to rise and let's sing this psalm in faith that, that God not only can build His church, but that He can establish righteousness and cause the nations of this world to kiss the sun. <laughs>